Welcome into ScoopsWithDannyMac.com, presented by Ryan Kelly, the Home Loan Expert. Visit him at TheHomeLoanExpert.com. Brian Anderson has been the play-by-play voice of the Milwaukee Brewers since 2007. Along the way, he has skyrocketed onto the national scene. He does the NBA, the NCAA Tournament, the PGA Championship, and many other events. In this podcast, we dive into that as well as his road to calling major sporting events. Sit back and enjoy my conversation with Brian Anderson. I'm Ryan Kelly with TheHomeLoanExpert.com. If you're even considering buying a home this year, get pre-approved today at TheHomeLoanExpert.com. Don't be the only offer on the table without a pre-approval letter from TheHomeLoanExpert.com. The Home Loan Expert LLC. I, I want to start with this. Why did you want to become a broadcaster? Where, where is it in your blood, your family history? Why did you want to do this? I think the, the origin, well, let's see. I think the original foundation of that would have been my dad always listened to games growing up, and he always listened to Cardinal games. So he was a huge fan of the Cardinals because when he grew up, KMOX boomed down all the way into Texas, where where I'm from. And so that carried over to now my junior high, middle school, high school years. As I'm playing, he would always pull up the station wagon in the outfield, there was a place you could park right there. Our, our little stadium was in a, in a, you know, a park. And he would sit there with his foot hanging out the window, listening to the radio. And you could get KMOX or you could get the Houston Astros or the Rangers or KNBR would boom in after sunset from San Francisco, believe it or not. So he was the guy who just loved getting on the dial and just like scratching across the dial trying to find trying to pull down one ball game somewhere and so that's kind of where it started my grandfather was the same way had the transistor Mm -hmm. under his bed he was that guy my dad carried that over and then for me I was always a player and I wanted to play and never even thought about anything else other than playing and maybe um, going into scouting something like that but in the back of my mind I always felt like I had this natural instinct to call plays to see something and put words on it so even as a player in high school I was a catcher um, I would sit back and and I would call play by play just kind of to myself or sometimes out loud and then my teammates used to say man that's pretty good actually can you keep doing (laughs) it and it kind of culminated when I was in college uh, and I was playing baseball in college and um, I didn't catch the second games of doubleheaders, right? So you'd catch the first game. I didn't catch the second game. So I got really tight with the coach because, you know, he liked talking through games uh, from a managerial, say, bench coach perspective. Mm-hmm. And so we would do that. But I would call play-by-play, and he loved it. And so here's my head coach, who's also the athletic director, saying, hey, do some more of that. I need, to, I need a good laugh. And this so, is on the bench. This is on the bench during second games of doubleheaders. I remember I used to do it when I would catch. There was this one umpire named Mike down in, in our conference, and he loved it, man. He's like, oh, there's my guy. Will you do some play-by-play for me? <laughs> and so I, I'd do it, um, and he'd always, you know, after a guy would strike out and he'd be away from me, I would say, yeah, and I got him on a big curveball. And he goes, <laughs> that's great, man. Do that again. So I had this, I don't know, this um, – test audience already going and I so uh, until the point where I felt like I was gonna not be able to play anymore which I probably uh, accepted two years too late (laughs) I should have accepted it in my high school years but I always thought up until my sophomore year in college I was still gonna have a chance to go and play Mm -hmm. professional baseball but I always had it in my mind that I wanted to be a broadcaster and it all got 
uh, finalized because the stadium that we played in when I was in college, we shared that stadium with the minor league team, the AA San Antonio Missions in the Texas League. And so we became very close with those guys, grounds crew, shagging home run balls. Um, and so when I graduated, they offered me a job, and I had a job to be a scout, to go into scouting school for the Reds, and I had a job to go work for $25 a game to do be the number two guy with the San Antonio Missions, home games only. And I took the $25 a game job, and that that's kind of was the genesis of all of it. And, and when you do that, then, you're also doing the marketing, the selling of yeah. the commercial. You're doing everything. Yeah, I didn't sell, but I did – I, I did the PR, so I kind of handled the game notes, uh, the public relations side of it. I would organize events for local media. Like I, we had a big softball game every year, whatever I could to drum up interest in the team. Um, and I, I always made sure that I separated uh, the, the broadcasting side with something I could actually go make a living at. And for me, that was uh, as a freelance production cameraman, audio, I did – I was a utility, so a cable puller. I did all these things. Um, I started in uh, like public television, so I was there doing the mayor's forum and the city manager's report, running camera, you know, falling asleep in the middle of a long, you know, city council meeting. But we used to air those live, and we aired those through this studio. And I did that while I was in college as an internship, paid internship, um, and then. I carried that on even as I was doing play-by-play in the minor leagues. I, I maintained that job um, working for the San Antonio Spurs, working for high school football. Uh, at the time, there was this network called HSC, Home Sports Entertainment, that did a ton of uh, lower-level college and high school sports. And I was doing all kind of stuff, camera, audio, uh, graphics, taking whatever freelance jobs I could have. So I lived two lives there for about five years after I graduated from from college, the broadcasting life in the summer and the tech utility life in the uh, in the wintertime in the off season. That gives you great perspective, doesn't it? It really did, and I use it to this day, man. The the fact that I can go in and uh, you know, like like you know, probably very few people know, but you would is when you don't hear things right in your headset. Oh yeah, it can make a huge difference. And when you travel and you go on the road. Most people don't realize this, but you deal with a local crew. So when my crew goes to St. Louis, you're getting people who live in St. Louis who work on the visiting show. And so for me to be able to tell them exactly what I'm hearing, like I need more of this, more gain, less this, uh, I I can speak the language because I did it. And it just helps expedite um, getting things the way you may like them or the way they sound in your headset because we did it. I did it for so many years in the minor leagues, engineering my own broadcast, and then actually as a technician, uh, working audio and camera and graphics. So that's one part of it. So you can speak the language. You feel like one of them. The other part of it is um, you really, uh, for me, I have a great perspective and great understanding of the skill level and the artistry it takes to actually perform these jobs. Mm -hmm. So when we get a great shot of a play at the plate and the cameraman is perfectly zoomed and perfectly in focus. There's a human being behind that camera that's allowing all of us to see it. And we don't ever think about that. Right. But I know how skillful that is to zoom, focus, be in context, have the right framing. And so, you know, it, it allows me to really promote those guys and, and gals and tell them, look, man, I appreciate you giving us that kind of look. So I think it helps um, just with camaraderie and team building and, 
it's not fake. It's something, but something that I enjoy because I appreciate what they can do. So we have a, a great relationship and, you know, I want to get along well with all the people I work with, right? As do you. And it's important doing this job every day, like we do for seven months to have that positive working environment. For me, that's a huge part of it, the fact that I did all these tech jobs. How about the biggest influences for Brian Anderson behind the mic? Who are those announcers that really influenced you? Well, Jack Buck's on, on high on the list. I'd did say, you meet Jack? Yeah, I did. Jack gave me, matter of fact, in a roundabout way, Jack gave me probably the biggest break. Uh, I never got to tell him this either because I, didn't, I hadn't made it to the major leagues before he had passed. I told Joe this, though. I told Joe this story. Uh, but I was working Monday Night Football as a, in the tech world. I was uh, doing computer stats, so we were kind of setting up all the stats, graphics. This is in the 90s. This is in 92, 91, 92, 93. Jack Buck was on the gig on the radio Monday Hank Night Stram. Football with Hank. Yeah. Right. So I would see them every week, and I would always talk to Jack. And I remember uh, going up to him at the Four Seasons in Dallas. He was <laughs> he was in a Navy sport coat. In the middle of the day, it was about 95 out. He was sitting at the pool at the – there was like this restaurant bar at the pool. And he's in his he's coat. He's in his coat, uh-huh. and he's eating a hamburger with a knife and fork, open-faced. And I'm just like, <laughs> this is the most interesting thing I've seen. So I, I walked up to him. I said, Jack, he remembered me and like a face while – he knew I'd been around. Like, oh, hey, how you doing? Uh, and I said, I need to introduce myself. I'm Brian Anderson. I'm a minor league broadcaster. I, I had just started at that time. I had just gotten that job. And and he told me two things. He goes, first, uh, he said, it, doing the minor leagues, said it's easier to do a minor league game than a major league game. And he laid out the reasons why. And I was like, wow, he's right. You know, because the notes and having to put, like you were saying, having to go in and do the press notes and come in and do all that yourself and engineer the whole thing yourself. Um, it was easier for him to just show up, sit down. He had done his prep and he did the game. And then the other thing was I asked him if he would listen to a tape thinking that every announcer, now that I'm in on this side of the fence, it's ridiculous that, I mean, we can offer advice, but it, we don't have say in who gets hired and how Mm -hmm. guys get jobs, you know, around in outside of our sphere of influence, right. In our ball club. So he goes, instead of sending me a tape, he wrote down an address, and he it was a, it was a guy by the name of Norman Bear. Used to produce all the CBS sports he stuff. Was, he yeah, was, he the, was world, the guy. Fifty years he did the World Series. He sat right next to Jack for years, and so he goes, "Don't send me a tape. I can't do anything for you, kid. Send this to Norman Bear, and if he if you're good enough, he'll make it happen." And I went, "Wow!" He went, we, he went into the black book, the NFL black book, right, and showed me where his name was. So I took that. I wrote down the name and address. And I sent him a tape, and that kind of started everything. He didn't get me a job, but he got me an interview with the Padres right away in 94. That turned into a job at ESPN because the guy from ESPN had asked if Norman knew any young announcers. So I was doing the AA All-Star game, which led to the Spurs job for me as a sideline reporter, which led to the Golf Channel, The like literally started the whole ball rolling, Jack Buck at the pool at the Four Seasons. That's an amazing story. So, so Jack was a major influence. Uh, Ernie Harwell was a major influence. Yep. And even though I learned later he wasn't the best guy in the world, but Milo Hamilton was the guy I grew up listening to, wasn't the friendliest guy and um, you know, we didn't have a great relationship because he just kind of refused 
to engage with any of us younger announcers when I first got to the league. But we were threats. He he was really good, man, and he was a you know in his prime he was really good. And yeah. He had a lot of warmth in his voice and a, just a lot of showmanship and theatrics and and he'd say whoa whoa the Astros and he'd just put a lot into it and I used to listen to those games circling back to my dad with the foot out the door in the station wagon he was usually listening to the Astros uh, and he loved Milo he loved the way he spoke and his whole just he just loved every day in the big leagues that's one thing about Milo Hamilton on the air I'm not so sure he loved it off yeah. the air but on the air he did um so yeah Milo Hamilton uh, was another one and then Mark Holtz who most people don't know but he was a great voice of the Rangers that passed away way too soon died in surgery actually um, in 1997 but he was one of those guys that not only was great at his job had a big voice but when you he, I had sent him a tape and he had critiqued it and he he went like into the details I still have the letter I mean it was two pages long Everything you could ever want from a broadcasting perspective, how to call a baseball game, innings, when to breathe, when to get loud, the scale one to ten, when to get to your ten call. I mean, it was fascinating. So I'd say those four or five guys, and I mean, obviously Vin Scully is, yeah. he's just, no one can achieve. He's in a different <laughs> level. We all love him, right. but nobody can achieve that level. So he actually made me want to quit broadcasting, so I stopped <laughs> listening to him. I'm Ryan Kelly with thehomeloanexpert.com. If you're even considering buying a home this year, get pre-approved today at thehomeloanexpert.com. Don't be the only offer on the table without a pre-approval letter from thehomeloanexpert.com. The Home Loan Expert LLC. When you, you know, I was saying about this before we were going to sit down. You have the best of both worlds in many ways because you get to be with a local team, but also then break away and go do the national work that you do, whether it be with golf or, or basketball, college, NBA. Um, what what do you prefer? What do you like? Well, uh, that is that's set up because the Brewers have been so generous and they've been great. And I think Bob Euchre probably set that precedent when, sure. he, when he was here uh, in the '80s. And he's doing Johnny Carson, and now he's doing Mr. Belvedere, and he's doing movies, and Bud Selig kind of set that standard with the way to keep this guy in Milwaukee is to let him spread his wings and do other stuff. That was the, the general philosophy of the organization from a broadcaster perspective. So I give him a lot of credit for that. And then it's different ownership, of course, but our CEO, COO, is, uh, uh, you know, comes from the Bud Selig lineage right so he his philosophies are the same and they've been great to let me do that and so that's first and foremost so they've let me miss a lot of games to go do national games um, as far as what I prefer to do I really like doing what I whatever I'm hired to do so if I'm if I show up at an NBA playoff game it's the best thing that I want to be doing right there at that moment you know I miss the Brewers when I'm doing an NBA game but I'm totally engaged and fully invested in doing the NBA and I love the NBA playoffs and doing these big broadcasts, you know, that are drawing huge numbers, you know, the NCAA tournament. I did a game, you know, we're doing say 150, 200,000 viewers at, at the Brewer level. I go do an NCAA tournament game. There's 20 million viewers, you know, that's a huge difference in scope, but I engage and appreciate both disciplines equally because I'm paid to do that job and so I know it sounds kind of corny but I really do like what I'm doing at that moment and when I'm doing baseball and now I come to the end and I and I break away for a month to go to do the NBA playoffs I look forward to that 
And then when I'm done with the NBA playoffs, I really look forward to getting back to baseball, hanging out at the batting cage, calling my team, my team, you know, the Brewers are my team. I work for the team. So I, I really, man, I feel really lucky to be able to do it, knowing that it could all end quickly. So um, I, I'm thankful that that everybody has been okay with me doing all that. High stakes poker is the NCAA tournament. What <laughs> it, what is it like to to call those games? Oh man, it's so cool. It's just uh, you've done a lot of basketball, so the rhythm of it is the same. Um, but there is a different level from the athlete on the floor to what you're um, reporting. Right, like you you sense the tension. So it's our jobs to kind of dive into that moment as best we can. Not be so hard on them because they're going to make mistakes. College kids, you know, they're going to make mistakes, especially under the under the pressure of that NCAA tournament. So it's a little different in that where you're not as hypercritical at all. You understand how uh, how it could be a difficult thing to operate and manage. So, for example, I'll just give you an example of how something you may say that I wouldn't normally say in a regular college basketball game or regular season game is like, who's going to take this big shot right here? Somebody's got to take a big shot. Right. There's 30 seconds left. And now that works in concert with your director who now is showing you faces like, which one of these five guys sure. has the stones to put this shot up that's going to maybe change his life? Maybe. I mean, it has happened before. And they know that. And so I think that's the best part of it, that – you're so into it. And then when it's over, um, and the first day you do four games, right? And every game is the biggest game for those kids in those programs. Every game. So you've done four games over 10 to 12 hours, and you're kind of like, oh, I've done this all day. But it matters so much that you're you're so involved in it, and you're sensing every moment. Then you make all the calls, and the game ends. And now my first instinct is always to go right to March Madness Live and listen to some of the highlights because I want to know, okay, did I do this right? Did I say it right? Did I set it up right? Did I call it properly? I remember this story. Will Sheehy of Indiana makes a shot. So Indiana, uh, they beat VCU to go to the Sweet 16. I believe it was Oladipo who got the rebound on the other end, goes the length of the floor, puts up a layup. It, it was blocked. It ends up right in the hands of Will Sheehy, who then puts a little teardrop in to put Indiana ahead with seconds left. They won the game. So we immediately go back. That was the last game of the day. We go back to the hotel, and I'm telling my partner, Steve Smith, I'm like, man, can you believe that block shot went right to Will Sheehy? And he goes, what are you talking about? I mean, no, I said, can you believe that pass right to Will Sheehy? And he goes, what pass? His shot got blocked. And I'm going, man, I got white. Yeah. I'm like, oh, my God, I got to go to the tape. And I called it a block. Yeah. So your instincts take, take over, and you call what you see. Seconds after it, I, I'm here – convinced that he made a pass I have no idea what I've just said I've just called it and I still don't remember me saying right. block shot right to we she he he shoots it and they take the lead whatever and I'm like man that's what the NCAA tournament is like you're so into it you don't even know what you're saying so I always go to the to the to the tape or to the highlights and just listen and just you know those moments going back to the replays I know you do this too but those moments are just agonizing I, until I never, you hear it <laughs> well I never want to screw up a guy's first strikeout first at bat first play because yeah. it lives with them for the rest of their lives right? and their family and their parents and their brothers and their sisters I mean my brother Mike Cardinal fans will know this moment well my brother Mike made his major league debut 
against the Cardinals in 1993 in the middle of a doubleheader, and he gave up two of the four home runs that Mark, Mark Whitten. Mark Whitten yeah. That was my brother's major league debut. Is that right? He gave up the two, Mike Anderson. So Larry Lubers gave up the first. Rob Dibble gave up the last. And I, I, I remember listening to this game on the radio, Jack Buck and Mike Shannon, and Jack and Mike are having this back and forth, and Jack was always so sweet about moments like that, about hey, he's making his major league debut. And there were four major league debuts at that day. Yeah. <laughs> and he go, I remember Jack said something like, well, it looks like we're going to set a record for major league debuts. <laughs> <laughs> so here comes my brother. And, um, and then he – so he gets – he gives up the two home runs. He gets knocked out. And, and he got roughed up. He, got, he gave up two home runs, maybe four or five runs. But I couldn't have been more proud, man. My brother of course. came from a tryout camp to make it to the big leagues like he made it yeah there's nothing more for him to do and and then mike said um mike shannon said well no calls to georgetown tonight which is my hometown no calls to georgetown tonight and i'm like totally wrong <laughs> he's calling and we're throwing a party man he made it like so i've always remembered that moment of me sitting on the other side of that radio trying to like scratch scratch in kmox and uh, mike making his debut and um Every time somebody makes his major league debut, it is the most important thing for me. Just like you said, I know you. we talk about this all the time, and I know it's important to you. I don't care what the score is, how many games under 500, what time of the year. It is the best day in that, that kid's life. No question. I always say this, too. It's big league baseball. Yeah. You show up, it's big league baseball. Funny story. Well, not a funny story, but a great call by Jack Buck. Often overlooked, and he had so many great ones, but that night on the fourth home run – he said, what a blast that is, what a blast this was. Ah, it's pretty good. Great call, absolutely. Um, Marv Albert, he gets sick for the NCAA tournament, yes. and you get the call. <laughs> yes. is, is this what kind of burst you onto the scene of, you know, you had obviously made it to mm -hmm. a national level, but this puts you into a different level of that category. Yeah. Describe that and what happened with that story. Well, the, the backdrop to that was in, I think, what, allowed me to get that job or get that call was um, years prior, five years prior, uh, Roy Halladay throws a no-hitter in the playoffs. And that game started at 4 Eastern. And you're on the call. It's so against I, the Reds. Yeah, I'm on the call. It's a playoff game. It's game one of the NLDS, Phillies and Reds. And we were supposed to do the Giants and the Braves that year, Joe Simpson and I, my partner. They, moved, they switched us at the last moment because they wanted the A crew to go with that, what they felt like was going to be the better series. So, you know, we show up at this game, and um, I had seen the Reds. I had seen the Phillies plenty. Roy Halladay's in this magical moment. and he So he throws a no-hitter, but the game ends, you know, it was a two-hour, 11-minute or whatever, 217 game, something like that. So What a dream. It's finishing, <laughs> right, yeah, in a playoff game. Right. So it finishes kind of right in the primetime East Coast wheelhouse, right? I'm sorry, it started at 5 Eastern, so it was it was finishing right after the 7 o'clock hour on the East Coast, and there were huge ratings when you got a no-hitter in the playoffs, and it was the first no-hitter in the playoffs, obviously, um, since the famous Don Larson perfect game is only the second no-hitter ever thrown, and so this was the first televised no-hitter, and so that went really well, and things went great, and good feedback on that, so that kind of set the stage where Turner Sports is now using me for bigger events, um, 
starting to do NCAA tournament games a couple of years after that, blah, blah, blah. So move forward now to 2015. Marv loses his voice. Um, he lost his voice during the Elite Eight, I'm sorry, the Sweet 16 games, two games, and they needed somebody to come in and do the Elite Eight game, and I had just seen Notre Dame. I'd had them in my pod, um, so I was very familiar with them. Kentucky was really easy. They were a pro team anyway, and so they called me in. I was at spring training in Phoenix. Um, they flew me in. Um, I was I was not even that nervous, to be honest with you, because I had no time. I flew in on a on a Friday night. I flew all day from Phoenix, Friday afternoon, got in late Friday night. Game was Saturday night, uh, jumping in with Chris Weber and Lynn Elmore. And I didn't even have a suit. They, they went to Men's Warehouse, got a two-for-one deal, got me a couple of navy blazers and a couple of ties and i had all my stuff was back in milwaukee so i had no time to even dress myself (laughs) so um the game was a classic and would have been one of the greatest games ever played had jaron grant made the shot that would have been the new leitner moment he missed it and it was a great game anyway and kentucky won the game but had he made that shot it would have been an all-timer and and the game was still a great game it was a, a highly rated game and so you know, the fact that they trusted me with that. And I remember I was even saying to them when they called Tara August from Turner, said, we want you to do this game. And I said, why me? I mean, you got a lot of other people. Sure. You fly Jim Nance in, fly Kevin Harlan in, fly Ian Eagle in. They're like, uh, nope, this is your gig, and we want you to do it because we think you're ready. And just to hear that from a boss, uh, you don't even think they're paying attention unless you say something stupid. Uh, but they were, and man, that just kind of gave me the confidence I needed to, to go in and just do the game. You know, I didn't do anything more. I had my notes. I did the game. Uh, it was a classic game. It was, it was a barn burner, man. It came right down to the last possession. And that was definitely the moment when, um, you know, I tell broad young broadcasters this, it's one thing to be ready for it. It's another thing to, to make sure that your boss, a boss, an executive trust you with it and there's a huge difference between doing the game and being trusted with the game right I was hired to do the game after that I was now trusted with games like that and since then they've put me on a lot of big games and honestly they're easier to do the big games are easier to do and it went goes all the way back to what Jack Buck said he was doing Monday Night Football these games are easier to do than what you're doing it's hard to do minor league baseball it's hard to do you know, you and I did the same package, small college basketball package. We shared it, remember? And, and it's hard to do those games when yes. you don't you don't have all the information. You're having to drum up all this stuff, and these players aren't recognizable. Those are the hard games to do. On a stage like this, if you can calm the nerves, understanding that a mistake's going to be heard forever, um, once you calm those nerves and do the game, uh, they're actually easier to do because the game is what everybody cares about, and you're just trying to stay out of the way. How about coaches, managers, who you like to cover, maybe some fun people behind the scenes? Yeah, I mean, you know, working with Bob Euchre every day is a joy. I mean, we he doesn't travel anymore, but my first eight, eight years, nine years in the big leagues, he traveled, and uh, that's just one of the all-time great <laughs> gifts is being able to sit on a bus with him and not even talking about broadcasting because he rarely does that, but just being around him and his genius, his comedic genius is something to behold. So that's that's fantastic. And, you know, I really do relish the relationships. I always tell people uh, the gig is great, but the re- relationships are what really matters. So, you know, with you and all of our colleagues that we work with, we're a pretty tight group. We understand 
the pressure that's involved. We understand how lucky we are. Very few understand what it's like to sit in the seat and call the game and lay your voice on these moments that are going to be heard. So it's a nice little fraternity uh, that we have that we can go back and forth and share some of our, um, you know, some of our thoughts and some of our struggles and all of that. Um, so that to me is what really matters. Um, you know, I, I love the guys that I'm around, my crew here in Milwaukee, my mm-hmm. partner. You know, you got to work hard to make those relationships work. It's just like any any business. If you want to thrive in the business, you have to make the relationships work. And it's not just showing up and being great on the air because that's a small part of it, honestly. It's all the other stuff. You know, do you care about a guy enough to shut your mouth and let him talk sometimes? Right. Do you care about a, enough about a guy to pass something along that maybe you did all the work to get but you can't use and you share it? You know, it's it's that that element that really motivates me every day to come be a good citizen and have people walk away going, man, I really enjoy working with Brian Anderson. I really enjoy working with Dan. I really enjoy working with Lynn. You know, all these guys that we are all, you know, uh, familiar with it. There's more to it than just what fans know on the air and the public side of it. I'm Ryan Kelly with the home loan If you're even considering buying a home this year, get pre-approved today at the home Don't be the only offer on the table without a pre-approval letter from the home loan expert.com. The home loan expert LLC. What can you tell me about LeBron James? It may be, I don't know. <laughs> LeBron James, when he runs by you in a full sprint, actually creates wind <laughs> not that kind of wind yeah, but the right. other kind of wind he doesn't break wind i he got creates you wind. i got you at six eight and as fast as he is he's the only player i've ever act felt his presence run by right. me it's like uh voldemort right yep. if you're uh if you're in i'm familiar do it so it, that's what it's like and that was something that kind of like woke me up when the first the first game I ever did with LeBron James and I did a lot of his playoff games when he flies by you you hear it you feel it in your feet cuz the floor it's like a horse running yeah. by you I mean as big and fast and powerful as he is it's there's no other player that does that What is he like I mean to cover that guy cuz to me when I'm watching him it's like watching greatness. It is, yeah. And we may never see a guy like this again. All that. And he knows that. I think probably more than any other superstar knew that. I was fortunate because I, I had a great chance as a cameraman. I, I sat right on the floor. I got to be a part of a lot of Michael Jordan's yeah. um, greatness. And so I've seen Michael Jordan as a really young guy as a cameraman. And now I've seen LeBron James as a broadcaster. And there will be times when LeBron James will – Make a three. I remember in Indiana in a playoff game, he hits a he hits a three from the wing, which is right in front of us, literally 15 feet in front of my position. It's a like a 20-foot three-pointer at the end of the shot clock. And he immediately turns right around to me, and I think Steve Smith was with me at the time, and he looks right at us, and he's like giving us that look like, you see that? You enjoy that? <laughs> you know, he didn't say anything. He just kind of like looked at us like, mm-hmm, that yeah. was for you boys. Uh-huh. He does that all the time. So he constantly looks over at the table in the middle of what he's doing and pulls you into what he's doing. And so it, he's fascinating, man. I'm so impressed with him and um, what he's been able to do this year is crazy. That team has no business being in the no. NBA Finals. <laughs> who, do you, who do you like in the Finals, brother? Uh, I like Golden State. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just think they're way more talented, and the weapons they have, Boston didn't. And, you know, I'm a huge Steve Kerr fan. I used to work with Steve. I covered him as a player, and then I worked with him with the Spurs. Sure. And then I worked with him with Turner. Um, he's one of my favorite guys in the world, and 
Um, I, I think they're, they have just too many weapons uh, to, to hold down. A couple more questions before yeah. I let you go. In St. Louis, obviously a lot of people are excited about the PGA coming to yeah. uh, the Gateway City. You're going to be working the PGA Championship. Um, give us an idea what it's like to do golf from an announcer's perspective. Oh, it's really cool. It's totally different than anything – and any, what you're expecting at Bell Reve, too. Yeah, Bell Reve, everybody's excited about Bell Reve. I love that course, too. And the fact that it's back in the Midwest, you know, I think the, um, I, I love when there's big tournaments in the Midwest. We saw it with the U.S. Open at Aaron Hills. People just, they support it, man. They Just like the Cardinals sell out every day, it's going to be packed. And that drives energy, right? And so there's going to be a lot of energy. And the way the course is situated for me is going to create some really cool epic loud roar moments so i wouldn't say it's augusta national but it's going to be close to that because there are trees and that the volume and sound is going to ricochet around all that wood right so i love that idea from an audio perspective it's you're going to get some really cool uh sounds and visuals um doing golf is uh unique to any other sport because you don't actually see the live ball in play everything you're doing is off a monitor and a lot of times it's on tape so you you may know something's already happened, but you've got to kind of set the scene and tell the story as if it's live because it is for the viewer at home. So you're going back and forth live to tape, live. To, so basically every live shot is supported by a tape shot, right? So every live shot on one, I'll give you a little secret on golf. So if if you count to seven, at the first time you see a player and you count to seven and he makes contact with the ball, that shot's on tape. Because everything is a seven-second pre-roll. Okay, so what you do is you have all these shots and all these players out there available. You take whatever you can live, and then you you support that with a tape shot. It's not like every other, but it's like that. So if there's another live shot available, you'll go to that. If there's another one, you go. You may go three or four in a row, and then nobody's hitting a golf ball right now, so you go to a tape shot. And so that keeping all of that organized is really the producer's game. And you're, you're dependent more than any other sport on a producer in your ear telling you second shot at 15, here's, you know, he, here's Jordan Spieth. And you are taking that information, turning it into your own, while you're, for me, searching through the scoring um, computer, <laughs> trying to figure out what he's done the last three holes. Right. You're kind of talking without knowing what you're saying. You're, you're multitasking it. It's... So I may say uh, second shot at 15 for Jordan Spieth. Click, click, click. Yeah, who's birdies his last three holes. <laughs> right. And so, you know, obviously as you get to championship Sunday, that gets easy because you're only following sure. the leaders. But it's awesome, man. Everybody, everybody thinks golf's so slow and all that, man. If you've, if you've ever sat in a production truck or watched golf on TV, from my perspective, it is not slow. It is like four hours of just straight What's next? What's next? What's next? What's next? And that's the whole idea. So I do PGA.com in the mornings. So I'll be actually on with Billy Kratzert. We'll be covering a marquee group. So you'll get to see every shot. And that's a really fun way to do golf. It's low stress because you're with every player in that group. There's, you know, Thursday, Friday will be threesomes. You're right. with every player. You're watching every shot. You're, you're going through the golf course. You're setting up strategy. That's a really fun way to do it. So I would love for people to jump on that side of it because I think it's fascinating if you're a real golf fan to watch how a tour player gets through a round not just like how's he hit this shot let's go to the next shot it's like how's he thinking how does he step back how does he how does he navigate this particular hole which may set up for Sunday Um, and then I do the TNT broadcast in the afternoon so those are long days 
Thursday and Friday, but um, it's really fun. It's a major. It's really cool, and uh, it means a lot, just like what we're talking about with the NCAA tournament. You see guys collapse and do things they wouldn't do, and you see guys shine in those moments, and it's like, whoa, that's a moment forever, forever. That's a moment for this player that 100 years from now, they're going to have a plaque on the ground. They're going to have something they're going to be talking about this you know, this moment. Right. So final uh, question for you. And thank you very much for your time. I do appreciate it. Um, when you think about the NCAA tournament or calling a no hitter in postseason play, or maybe even something here with the Milwaukee Brewers, or maybe even a personal milestone for you behind the mic in the minor leagues, whatever it may <laughs> be. What, yeah. what is your one favorite moment that you look at in your career that you're most proud of? Um, I think my first day in the big leagues here with the Brewers is still going to be the one, you know, I was really proud my first day on the air in the minor leagues, but I didn't fully understand how difficult those jobs were. I was lucky to get this job. I never even had to move. I got this job right out of college. I, I had a relationship with the team. They're like, hey, you want to come on? We got a guy who's he's a little older and he needs some help. You know, So it didn't resonate with me how impactful it was to get a job. So I got the job, even though it didn't pay anything hardly, but I got the job there. But when I got the major league job, uh, with the Brewers and and arrived here and I we, we played the Dodgers it was opening day Ben Sheets pitched a complete game Vin Scully was traveling at the time and to just think about I'm calling the same plays as Vin Scully right now it was overwhelming there were a few moments in that game when I was literally uh, tearing up and like my bottom lip was quivering like what have I gotten myself into holy crap <laughs> Vin Scully's calling this. Right. I'm calling this. Somebody's going to put these two together and go, oh, this guy sucks. <laughs> you know, I'm having all these anxiety moments. Um, but, man, just to be a part of it. And I had, I had left baseball, you know. I had done minor league baseball for nine years. I was getting beat down. I couldn't take the buses anymore. And I went to golf. I, I worked for the Golf Channel. That was a huge break for me. So I left baseball and it's hard enough to get a major league job when you're in the minor leagues it's impossible to get one when you're not even doing baseball but I did luckily I don't know how but I was able to get the Brewers job so I came out of the golf world back into the baseball world and I really appreciated it to be in that seat calling a major league game and I had only done major league uh, I'm sorry I'd only done baseball on the radio at that time I had done all kind of television, golf, basketball, mm -hmm. but I'd never done a major league game on television before the first game I did in 2007 on TV. So I was still trying to get away from my Ronnie radio days and describing right. everything like, like you're used to. Um, so that would have been for sure the greatest moment for me and personally. And then, you know, the holiday no-hitter, that Kentucky-Notre Dame game you talked about, Steph Curry scoring 17 points in an overtime that's crazy. Yeah. Uh, in five minutes. Uh, that was one of those moments, like, you know, this is going to be talked about forever. Um, and, you know, to be able to work with guys like Kevin McHale or Chris Weber and these really famous people, Reggie Miller, those are all just kind of in the pantheon of cool things that I've done. Um, but being in that seat the first day, first inning with Ben Sheets on the mound and calling a major league play-by-play -play game on television was overwhelming and exciting and memorable and all those things.
This is awesome. Thank you. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me, Dan. I'm Ryan Kelly with thehomeloanexpert.com. If you're even considering buying a home this year, get pre-approved today at thehomeloanexpert.com. Don't be the only offer on the table without a pre-approval letter from thehomeloanexpert.com. The Home Loan Expert, LLC. Already, it's been an amazing career for Brian Anderson. Many thanks to him for his time and insight in what has been a fascinating run to the top. As always, this has been brought to you by the Home Loan Expert, Ryan Kelly. Visit him at thehomeloanexpert.com. Thanks for checking out Scoops with DannyMac.com.